0: Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name is Dan, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here for Life Point Worthington, along with Jason Phillips, who is our uh, Campus Life pastor, who is uh, busy helping make sure everything runs smoothly on a Sunday morning, getting our uh, life team set up, which many of you serve on. Uh, So just we're very grateful. I mean, Church is a team effort, right? It's not about one person who stands on a stage and does something. It's about a community coming together and saying, hey, together we are going to encounter the living God uh, when we meet. So uh, it's just a joy for me to be uh, a part of this church family with you all. Uh, hey, if this is your first time at Life Point Worthington, or maybe you've been checking out Life Point from a distance for a while, one of the easiest ways to take a next step or get some more information about what's going on in this community is to take your phone out and you can scan that QR code that's right on one of the seats right in front of you. That's going to take you to a landing page where you can either fill out a welcome card. You can find notes to follow along the message today there too. But if you fill out that welcome card, it's a guaranteed response that either Jason or myself will reach out to you later next week. We'll set up a time Uh, to meet for coffee, have a little conversation, share more about uh, what we believe God has called us to in uh, Worthington, and for us to hear your story a little bit more. You'll also uh, see a spot right at the end. You can designate one of our partner ministries that we will give a $5 donation to in your honor, just as a way of saying thank you for being with us today. All right, if you have a Bible with you, why don't you open up to the Old Testament book of Daniel. The Old Testament book of Daniel. You can try your luck just opening straight up to the middle of the Bible. You might get lucky and land in the book of Daniel. If you can't find it, uh, the table of contents is your friend. Nobody's looking. Uh, it's right at the beginning of your Bibles. You can, uh, you can find Daniel that way as well. Daniel chapter 3. This morning, we got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to be moving quickly through uh, the message this morning. Uh, We're going to be continuing in our series called Exiles, uh, which follows the story of God's people being removed from their homeland, uh, from their homes, and learning that faith is far more about how you live than just where you live. For us, the book of Daniel shows us what it looks like to follow Jesus in a world and culture that doesn't. Right, Daniel is going to show us what it looks like to follow Jesus in a world and culture that uh, doesn't. And, and I think this has been an incredibly insightful uh, storyline for us to follow as we think about what it looks like to engage in the world around us as followers of Jesus. You remember the last two weeks, we have uh, kind of, we, we've done some heart work the last two weeks saying, hey, if we want to engage our communities with the good news of great joy for all people in the gospel, we have to look first. At ourselves, uh, there's some things that we need to uh, admit that we, we have some heart issues in our own lives. We said this in week one. We are a wavering people. We waver back and forth between what we want to do and what God uh, wants us to do. Last week, uh, you remember this if you were here. I said all of us have a uh, a picture of Dorian Gray. You remember that painting I showed us, uh, that grotesque painting that somebody was hiding away. I said all of us have one of those in our own attic. We have things that we desperately want to uh, hide from the world around us. We want to hide from God himself. And the stunning uh, news of the gospel is that uh, the God who reveals already sees what we would rather have hidden away. Uh, And in Jesus, we are far more loved than we could dare to have imagined. Now, today, uh, we hit what I think is probably the most important part of the uh, story of Daniel uh, that we will be looking at in this short series, at least in terms of us stepping out and engaging in the world around us. Now, why do I say that? Well, uh, here's the thing. From 30,000 feet... Uh, The uh, story we're looking at today, here it is, chapter 3 follows Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, as they are faced with a decision to either respect their king or their God. They have to choose. They have to make a choice. If they go along with the king's command, nothing in their lives changes, not a single thing in their immediate lives changes. They will go about doing uh, what they have been doing, no real problem in the near future. But if they don't go along with what the king is commanding, demanding of them, uh, there's this little you know, thing that they will be uh, murdered and burned alive. So they have that on the other side. Now, this is hardly the decision we are faced with today. Okay, hardly. If you are and you need help, let me know. We'll talk about it. Um <laughs> So why do I think this is such an important part of the Bible for us? Like, What does this story have to do with anything that we could possibly be going on uh, encountering today? Well, you see, when we dig down a little deeper into Daniel chapter three, what we find is that this is actually a story about worship. This is a story about worship. It's a story about what you and I give our lives to and what you and I would give our lives up for. It's a story about worship, and everybody, everybody worships. Which at first, you you may be thinking, Dan, that's too broad or too generic of a statement. Sure, maybe religious people worship, but everybody, come on. In his uh, 2005 commencement speech at Kenyon College, not far from here, American novelist and professor David Foster Wallace uh, said this in a way that captures both the universal uh, truth and danger of worship. He said uh, this, it's on the screen behind me. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when the time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before anyone finally grieves you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will uh, need ever more power to, over others to numb you to, to your own fear. Worship your intellect and being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not, I'm going to amend this, not simply that they are evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious, unconscious. They are default settings. You see, the myth of modern culture, and I'd say the cultural moment we live in right now, is that worship is a thing of the past. It's a thing that uh, people who, who still worship have this primitive or ancient practice that are out of touch at best or socially destructive at worst. But what I love about this quote from David Foster Wallace, who is not a follower of any particular religion, is how directly he calls our cultural bluff. Essentially, he says this, idols the uncontested objects of our worship are not something we had in a foregone era. They are something we have. We all have them. The only question is what or who are they? And what do they demand of us? You see, we can pretend all we want, all we want, uh, that they aren't there. But the same decision Daniel's friends face In Daniel chapter three is the decision we face today. And yet this story also gives us a map for navigating a world filled with idols. As along with Daniel's friends, we recognize, reject, and replace the idols of our hearts and minds and our broader culture. So, if you're not there yet with me yet, open up to Daniel chapter 3. I will pray and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you this morning that we walk into uh, this place with your people. God, and some of us uh, just need a moment to say, like, we we have no idea what we're doing inside of a church or why we've come back. Not sure what we're looking for. Maybe we're looking for some type of answer. Maybe we're looking for some kind of freedom from something that is holding on to us that we uh, just cannot seem to shake. I pray that you would speak powerfully by your word to us today. God, there are others of us uh, who are absolutely overjoyed with uh, things that have happened in the last two weeks, or uh, some, some personal issues going on in our lives, or we, we feel like uh, we're just grateful uh, to be here. I pray, Lord, that you would help those of us in that place to direct all of our uh, affection this morning on Jesus, who is worthy of all of our praise. Would He be the object of our worship? Others of us feel deeply disappointed. The point is we walk in here in very different places. And so we ask, Lord, that uh, we can take you at your word when you invite us to bring whatever uh, it burdens us. We can lay it at your feet. Like Psalm 55 reminds us, you will sustain us. Help us understand your word today. God, so that we go and live these things out in the world around us. Lord, we are grateful for your kindness to us that you've shown us today. Even this weekend, Lord, we uh, remember those uh, who have served our country. We're grateful for them and uh, for those who have many unspoken wounds that they're still unpacking as they come back from serving as veterans. Lord, we pray that there would be help and healing found in the gospel, Lord, we long for a day uh, where there is no more uh, fighting, where there is no more war. Uh, Lord, we're grateful for those who do serve our country, though. We pray for their protection. Lord, we trust you today. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Here's the first thing we're going to see in this uh, story, the process of recognizing idols. If you're taking notes or following along on the app, you can uh, see that first box there. We are recognizing idols. Now, just for some context, let me back up a little minute. Remember that Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were part of the royal family, the noble class in Jerusalem, uh, when Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonian Empire, particularly King Nebuchadnezzar. If you missed the last, two messages. You can find them on our website. They'll help give some greater context to what we're talking about to uh, today. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has a plan that he is going to take the best and brightest from Jerusalem. He's going to take them back and train them up, indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture. That's what he wants to do. And so far in chapters one and two, what we've seen is uh, how Daniel and his friends have gone out of their way to make sure that they honor God in their new land. They're saying, we want to be faithful to you, no matter what circumstances we have encountered, right? They don't just roll over and do whatever the king asks of them. Instead, their real goal, which I think is an admirable goal for us as well, is to live in a way that honors God no matter what the circumstances are. That's what they're chasing after. And in a bit of a paradoxical way, you've seen this in the story, that uh, the more they pursue living faithfully in Babylon, the more influence they are given by the king himself. They just continue to, uh, to be on this upward trajectory, and all of that kind of comes to a uh, halt for a moment in chapter three, because at some point, uh, we're not sure when this happens while they're in Babylon, but at some point, Nebuchadnezzar uh, comes up with this idea that, hey, what if, what if I built a giant, 90-foot-tall, statue in the middle of the empire and just had everybody start to bow down and worship it as it represents me and my power, right? He has this novel little idea. This is what we see in verse one. Look with me there. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. its breadth was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, And the reason he's doing this is simply to reinforce to everybody around who is in charge. He sends words through all of the, the right channels uh, uh, that when a certain sound is played, everybody in the empire is supposed to, uh, quote, fall down and worship the image. You can see that in verses three and four. And, and this is the part of the story that I think you know, first starts to feel uh, a little primitive and, and as a result kind of irrelevant. Like w- w- who cares about you know, this thing that happened a couple thousand years ago? Because worship, you see, worship is one of those words that we tend to keep firmly within a religious context. Worship is something, you know, on our minds, worship is something that happens in a temple or a mosque or a, a church. It's what religious people do with their gods. But I think that that's a really unhelpful way of thinking about worship. Because it, it, it's far too narrow. It, and it misses all of the other uh, spaces where something far more profound and formative is happening. Sometimes right under our noses without us even recognizing it. A better way to think about worship is this. Here's a definition, you can write it down if you're taking notes. Worship is the relationship we have to anything that gives us value or worth. Worship describes the relationship we have to anything that we think gives us value or worth. And so for example, worship is exactly how you would describe a relationship uh, between a follower of Jesus and God. Right? That you look to him for your value and worth, your satisfaction and joy. That, that relationship, it produces certain actions within you. That's why we sing like we've done this morning. You, you pray, you're willing to make sacrifices and a growing desire to honor him, not out of a, a space of duty, but out of affection. Right? now, this is how we typically think of worship, which is perfectly fine, but it is also an uncomfortably accurate way of explaining the relationship that some of us, maybe, have to our careers, right? That you look to your job or your title in that job to give you value and worth. You want to know how much value and worth you ascribe to it? Watch what happens when you no longer have that job, or you get a better one. How do you feel about yourself? Your very identity is placed in this and that relationship produces certain actions, right? You may not pray and sing, but how many are willing to sacrifice their families or other significant relationships on the altar of success, Worship is how you can define your relationship to uh, sexuality and how you look for and desperately seek your value and worth in this arena. It's how you can talk about your relationship to a spouse, a, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, or even a desire for one of those things. It's far broader than just a religious Context back to the story in Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image that represents his influence, his power, his authority, and he demands the entire nation fall down and worship it, meaning they worship him. He wants people to look to him for their value and worth and their protection and their comfort. Worship describes their relationship to him. And and the reason I'm spending so much time here on this, this one word, is just like David Foster Wallace observed in that quote we just read, uh, everybody worships. This is not an ancient thing. This is not just a religious thing that a certain subset of culture does. Worship is universal. Every single one of us worships something. In order to first recognize idols, like we're talking about today, uh, so that we can reject and replace idols, uh, we have to learn to ask an uncomfortable question. What am I worshiping? And I think one of the things we uh, see play out in Daniel's, th- this is one of the things we see play out in the story of Daniel's friends, because they look at this whole business of a statue being raised, and they realize they are being asked to do far more uh, than just affirm their allegiance to the Babylonian empire. That They recognize that Nebuchadnezzar now is an idol, and again, with, with that word, we find ourselves in a place of hearing a word that automatically we put into a box, right? We think of idols as these primitive stature, uh, these, these little statues that primitive cultures worship. We might think of it this way. How many of you ever traveled to like uh, Greece or uh, Turkey uh, out in the Middle East or anywhere where there's old things? Yes. Okay. So like not the U.S. All right. If you, if, you, if you go to Greece uh, and uh, Turkey today, you will find ruins of all of these ancient uh, cities. In fact, men, most of the, all of the cities that show up in the New Testament, you can travel to those actual places uh, in uh, Greece and uh, Turkey. You'll find these ruins and uh, you'll find these uh, cities that were dominated by temples and other places of worship. And from some context, we can put together what was happening inside of those uh, temples. We can maybe recreate from context clues uh, what they were uh, worshiping, why they were worshiping these different kinds of things. And some of the structures that they built in these ancient worlds were were enormous. I mean, you were talking about some of the seven ancient, wonders of the ancient world. The Temple of Artemis in modern day Turkey, which you can still go see the ruins of, could could house hundreds and hundreds of worshipers at a single time, and they'd all come to offer sacrifices to the Greek god of Artemis, and the people would gather there, but they believed they needed to please this idol uh, who, who was the god of uh, fertility, right? And Artemis and the other Greek gods are what we typically think of when we hear this word idol. We, we, we think of these, th- these ancient cultures that were doing things in, in temples that don't make much sense to us today, but I want you to, for a moment, imagine... Uh, that, that some some cataclysmic event takes place uh, that knocks humanity back on the progress scale a few thousand years, uh, Planet of the Apes style. Uh, if you have not seen that movie, spoiler alert. Um, and imagine that you know a few thousand years from now they they rediscover the ancient city of Columbus. How would they reconstruct what they find there? Like, what, what would they say we were worshiping? If they, if they dug up and found Polaris. Yeah, what if they found Polaris? They'd wonder what, what our fascination with the North Star was, right? What if they uh, found the, the ancient Columbus god of uh, commerce, Easton, and the massive temple there, or, or they uncovered our Colosseum where uh, 100,000 uh, 100, people would gather on the weekend to watch regional deities battle it out in front of there. <laughs> you see, we, we think it's a primitive thing, but actually we, are, we live in a city dominated by idols. And if you think I'm kidding, just take something silly, for example. Like, what if last night the Buckeyes lost? Oh. Come on, right? <laughs> silly, ha-ha, whatever. But how many of you would actually be, like, really bummed up out for a while? Okay. Come on. Not, yeah, I'm now, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying you got some, an, an idolatry problem there, but I'm kind of saying that. <laughs> Stuff gets in our heart. Stuff gets in our heart. And it's silly things sometimes. The problem is when they're much bigger things. All of a sudden, the idea of idolatry is not as primitive as we once thought we all worship. We may not immediately think of it that way, but it's real. We all have a set of idols to whom we look for our satisfaction and joy and uh, comfort, our value and worth, the demand for worship is everywhere. But like Daniel and his friends, we have to recognize an idol for what it is. As so the question is, you know, what, what are the idols of our age? What are the idols of our age? Pastor uh, Timothy Keller, who wrote a really helpful book uh, called Counterfeit Gods, he he defines it this way an idol. He says, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that, listen carefully to this, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give, it is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure." See, anything can become an idol in our lives. Anything, good things can become idols. Good things like education and uh, jobs and relationships can all become idols when we look to these things to give us more than they could ever actually supply. A whole host of substances become idols when we look to them for our real source of comfort and escape from a world you may feel trapped inside of right now. Addiction, in other words, is nothing less than the realization that we have been in Enslaved by what we worship. You see, Daniel 3 uh, first shows us that Daniel's three friends immediately recognize uh, the idol for what it is. A false promise, a counterfeit. And friends, as we navigate our own world today, Like Daniel's friends, we need to learn to recognize the idols that are around us, not pretend that they don't exist and somehow uh, we are immune to their allure. And uh, until we recognize that they are real, we will inevitably be lured away by their siren song. Keep reading the story, though. Verse 16. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered uh, and said to the king, remember he says, everyone bows down. They said to him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve are able to deliver us from the burning, uh, burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, uh, these three friends don't just recognize an idol for what it is. They reject idols, they reject the idol, they, they refuse to bow down and worship in front of the king. In other words, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, our ultimate allegiance, you see, is not to you. Our ultimate allegiance is not to your empire, not to your goals, we, we, because ultimately you are not the one who provides for us and sustains us. You are not the one who ultimately gives us value and worth and security, and I think that this, what, what they say to the king is the learned response to idols that we need today uh, as followers of Jesus. It, it is not simply to recognize idols in our lives or, or that someone or something has become an idol. We need to reject, that idol. We need to refuse to give it our allegiance. We divest our hope and uh, disentangle our worth from this idol that can so easily have profound control over our lives. And here's how this works. Here's how we get so caught up in idols But just like we've been talking about, in our modern culture, we may not bow down to an actual statue of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and beauty, but but the man or woman who stands in front of the mirror with a deep sense of shame over what they see is just as much a worshiper of beauty as those who once filled Aphrodite's temple. Why? I'm talking to myself because you are chasing after an image that you believe will provide a much deeper sense of satisfaction and joy. You believe that achieving that body will in some way make you worthy of the love and affection of another that maybe you have felt starved from, maybe even yourself. But rejecting the idol here, this is what it looks like, says, I was never meant to. To find my deepest sense of satisfaction and joy. My meaning and value has never meant to find it in my body. And if we keep looking for it there, it is a fool's errand that never ends Rejecting the idol says, no, I was not created to find my meaning in how other people view my body. It does not mean you stop caring about your body. No, rejecting the idol means that you reject the idea that your ultimate hope in this life is in attaining the best body you could possibly attain. It plays itself out in a thousand other arenas of our lives. Your career becomes an idol, a great example of a good thing that is poisoned uh, when it becomes an ultimate thing uh, because your career and your success uh, in that career does not have the ability to satisfy you. It doesn't matter how successful you are, that does not have the ability to satisfy you. That's why uh, you may have heard this quote before. This is from uh, Tom Brady, who, whatever you think about him, and probably not very positively here, but whatever you think about him, by any definition, he he has had an incredibly successful career. He said this in a 60 Minutes interview after his third Super Bowl win. He said this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my, my dream, my, my life. And me, I think, God, there's gotta be more than this. I mean, th- this can't be all it's cracked up to me. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. That's a really bummer number for me. What else is there? Rejecting the idol of your career does not mean that you give up on your job or don't care about it. No, you work with excellence. You do. But rejecting the idol says you refuse to rest your significance on the title you are given. You refuse to find your hope in this life on how fast and how high you can climb that ladder your education, your kids' education, where you live. Good night. I mean, this is, this is real time for me. The Lord, the Lord is uh, piercing me with some idols, idol worship that I did not even realize I had. Here's a big one. Right now, in real time, I'm working on this. The Lord, the Lord has revealed to me that, that I have made an idol out of my past 10 years pastoring in Chicago. And I get Puffed up about that when I talked to people. I was at a conference uh, last week, and th- there's this thing inside of me that needs to say like yeah, I, I was I was pastoring downtown Chicago. So just just to let everyone know, like I'm better than you, just a little bit. I've been in the real trenches. I Can sell out and move somewhere easy. Like there's there's something in my heart that wants to keep going back to this, uh, it, and it's not a true thing. It's an idol. It's an idol. When I get homesick, it's not wanting to go back to uh, where my family is. And, it's I want to go back to the status that I felt like I had. And it's not true. It's an idol. and I keep chasing after that. All of us we have idols in our own hearts. Now, before we close up here, we need to recognize that this is not an easy process to reject idols. Right? It's not as if we can simply decide uh, to no longer find value and meaning in these things uh, and move on with the rest of our life. Idols put up a fight. They put up a fight. Look what happens in Nebuchadnezzar's response to them when they say they're not going to bow down to this idol. Look what he says, Verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. It's how our idols respond to us filled with fury, and his ex- the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the burning furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent. And the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. I mean, if you want to really test the idols in your life, see what happens when you reject them. When you starve them. Because they will start to rear their ugly heads and all of a sudden, they demand an allegiance you may not have, have ever heard them demand from you. In a way, we go through idle withdrawal. We go through idol withdrawal, and some of it is with the more physically demanding idols, particularly the kinds that produce physical addictions, what happens when you stop? Your body has a physical and sometimes deadly response to you starving an idol. You go into shock. Everything inside of you is demanding that you go back to the very thing that is costing you your life. The reality is that so many of us, we go back. We go back to someone or something else to, to fill the void we have created in rejecting one idol, only to find that as we have removed that one, another has grown in its place we find that an idol we thought we've dealt with has come back in a way that we did not expect it to. Let me give you another example. I have met with so many uh, guys, and, and this is not just a struggle for men but for men and women, but I've met so many guys who uh, want to sit down and talk about an addiction to pornography in their own lives. And the conversation always plays out the exact same way that it is something they struggled with, they felt like they confronted, they rejected, they put up barriers, set up accountability, and promised never to go back, only to find several weeks later, several months or years later, pops right back up again. It might not be your thing, but all of us have had this moment uh, where we have said, I can't believe I did that again. Why does that happen? Why does that happen? I love how the, the great Protestant reformer put it in this like, pithy little statement. He said this, John Calvin, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, said this, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols what we are, a perpetual factory of idols, and the idols grow back. They grow back in strength. They want to put up a fight. They they want to retain the affections of our hearts, and they will do this until the very end of our lives, like Daniel's friends experienced being thrown into the furnace. Like weeds, idols grow back and spread. And again, like weeds, the only way to rid your yard of weeds is not just by pulling them up, but by actually growing grass in their place. In other words, we need to replace our idols with something else. We need something more real, something more beautiful, something more powerful to our hearts, minds, and imaginations to grow in its place. This, after all, replacing idols ends up being the key to what Daniel and his friends have done. It helps us understand uh, how they were able to truly recognize reject, and reject them and how we too will be able to follow them in this pursuit. You see, the final step uh, is in replacing idols with something better. Look with me again at their initial response to Nebuchadnezzar's demand that they bow down. Here's their response. There's something astounding that we skipped over in this. Verse 16, they said to the king, "O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Remember, he's demanding they bow down. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you're really going to throw us in the fire, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Here it is. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have put up. Did you catch that right at the end? They are convinced of two remarkable things here. Number one, they are convinced that God is far more powerful than their idol, right? And as a result, he would be able to deliver them from any and all retribution their idol could send their way. Number two, that either way, whether he rescues them or not, God is still more worthy of their affections, their, their allegiance than their idol. You see, you see this in verse 18, right? Right? They're convinced that God is able to deliver them, but he is worthy whether or not he does it. I mean, come on! How backwards does that feel? How backwards is that? I mean, how many of us in our heart of hearts have this conditional affection for our God? We might, say, we might not ever say it like this, uh, but, but the, somewhere the idea exists, if God really loves me, then he will do this or that for me. Uh, he will give me this or that, and that is what keeps our affections with him. If he, if he holds up his end of the bargain that we get to define. You see, what is so remarkable about Daniel and uh, his friends aside from how backwards this is from how we normally respond, is that the power and worthiness of God, here it is, the power and worthiness of God is far more real to them and far more beautiful to them than anything else they could possibly hold on to in this life. Let me say that again. The power and worthiness of God is far more real to them and far more beautiful to them than anything else they could possibly hold on to in this life. You see, this shows us that they have done something far more significant than just recognize an idol and replace or reject an idol. They have replaced that idol with something better. They have replaced the idols of their world, the idols of their hearts, with the one and only thing that is actually able to occupy and satisfy that position in their hearts, minds and imaginations, in our hearts, minds and imaginations, and that is God himself. See, friends, this is what we must do. Life Point Worthington, we, we have no hope of dethroning. Any idols in our own lives, in in our community, until we do the work of replacing the idols in our own lives, and they will find what we find there is that God is is with them, with us, even when the idols rage back against us and rage back against them. Look back at the story. I love this part. His three friends are thrown into the furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, oh, uh, true, O king, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Is it when they uh, replace their idol and suffer the consequence of this entire process, they found another in the fire? They found that their powerful and worthy God, the one who is far more real to them, far more beautiful to them, was ultimately there with them no matter what they were going to encounter. See, this is the key is they begin to replace this idol uh, that is available to them. They, They have found something that is far more powerful, far more worthy than anything else that they could imagine. My friends, I think the key for us, you see, uh, when we, we talk about this at, at LifePoint, sometimes we, this gets thrown into just some language uh, that we, uh, we, we use from time to time. When we talk about our core values, we, we talk about spiritual intimacy, and you see, the, the, the myth is that when we talk about spiritual intimacy, we're simply talking about the practice of just opening a Bible and reading it, and that there, there is something powerful that happens here, but you see, the necessity of spiritual intimacy, what we are doing as we regularly, daily, uh, develop the discipline of opening his word, meeting with him on a daily basis, we are, re- we, we are saying consistently and experiencing something becoming more powerful, more beautiful, more worthy in our hearts and minds and imaginations as we encounter the living God through spiritual intimacy and we walk with him daily, he becomes that uh, very thing that, cannot, that, that can only replace the idols of our hearts as we know and follow and walk with Jesus more and more and more. We, we, we develop and, and see that he is far more beautiful than we could have imagined, far more worthy than we could have imagined, and our spiritual intimacy begins to deepen and uh, take root in our hearts and minds and imaginations and see that's what we need as we not only recognize, reject, but replace the idols. And what we find in that spiritual intimacy is that we follow a God who is like no other. We follow a God who is like no other. In fact, this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar says himself as he wrestles with this miraculous deliverance that he has just witnessed uh, with these three friends. He says, let it be known that there is no God uh, like the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, that's what we find in the story of the gospel, that we have a God who is like no other who does not stand afar from us just watching the world play out and uh, occasionally mingling and, uh, you know, uh, waving a magic wand to make something happen. No, we, we, we have a God uh, who sees what is happening in our world and chose to step down into the world that he created in the person and work of Jesus. And, and instead of rejecting us for rejecting him, our God, like no other, decides that he is going to lean in And on the cross, we see this picture uh, put in stunning relief where he, on the cross, dies in the place uh, of humanity. Those who trust in him, having all of their sin attributed to Jesus as if it was his own, though he lived the perfect life and all of his righteousness, all of his perfection attributed back to us by faith in Jesus. You see, we have a God who is like no other. The story of Daniel Shows us over and over again that he is the one who is with us. He is the God who loves us. He is the God who does for us what we could not do ourselves. He is the God who rescues. So we have a God who is far more powerful, worthy, and beautiful than anything else we could give our affections to. And when we recognize that, we go through the whole range of recognizing, rejecting, and replacing our idols. Let's pray, and we'll continue in singing. Father, we ask this morning that you would, uh, long after we leave here, this place, you'd continue to speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, where we have idols left that remain with, with a stronghold in our hearts and minds and imaginations. Would you call them out, Allow us to recognize them for what they are because some of us feel right now in this moment that we are absolutely ensnared by an idol. And we're not even sure how we got there. Yet, Lord, by the power of Jesus, by the power of the gospel, we are able to find uh, liberty and freedom from the idols of our hearts and minds. And so we pray that we would see you today as the God of God who rescues. As you are the God who rescues, you are far more powerful, far more beautiful than anything else we could give our lives to and give our lives for. So we sing that back to you today, that you are the one who has come to our rescue. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.